Good evening. It is wonderful to have you here for this particular keynote. We are extremely excited to have uh, Darnell Moore as the speaker for tonight. Um, hopefully you've enjoyed the proceedings so far. I, um, along with my colleague Gordon Mikowski, we serve as the facilitators of this conference. Um, and we're very excited about, uh, of course, tomorrow's proceedings as well. So I will go straight into introducing Darnell Moore. Darnell is a writer in residence at the Center on African American Religion, Sexual Politics, and Social Justice at Columbia University. He is also head of strategy and programs at Breakthrough US and is the former editor at large at Cassius and a senior editor and correspondent at Mike. He is a co-managing editor at The Feminist Wire and an editor of The Feminist Wire Books. His advocacy centers on marginal identity, youth development, and other social justice issues in the US and abroad. He has held positions of visiting fellow and visiting scholar at Yale University Divinity School, the Center for the Study of Gender and Sexuality at New York University, and the Institute for Research in African American Studies at Columbia University. Most importantly, there were a number of people when Darnell walked into the room, they lamented that they actually forgot their books, the book that he has recently written that I will uh, introduce in a moment because they realized they could have had him sign the book. Um, so most importantly, he is the author of No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America. In this book, Darnell recounts that when he was 14 years old, three boys from his neighborhood tried to set him on fire. They cornered him while he was walking home from school, harassed him because they assumed he was gay, and poured a jug of gasoline on him. He escaped, but just barely. It wasn't the last time he would face death. And so now three decades later, Moore is an award-winning writer and activist. I was just looking uh, online at Amazon and his book, No Ashes in the Fire, the old magazine has endorsed it, um, along with recently his book being uh, selected as uh, the 100 uh, uh, most notable books um, of the year. Um, he is an award-winning writer and activist, a leader in the movement for Black Lives Matter, and a tireless advocate, advocate for justice and liberation. In No Ashes in the Fire, he sets out to understand how that scared, bullied teenager not only survived, but found his calling. Moore traces his life from his childhood in Camden, New Jersey, a city scarred by uprisings and repression, to his search for intimacy in the gay neighborhoods of Philadelphia, and finally to the movements in Newark, Brooklyn, and Ferguson, where he could fight for those who, like him, survive on society's edges again. And I think what's most important is he is a PTS alumnus. He's one of us, right? And so we are so excited, Darnell, that you are here. So if you could please welcome Darnell with me. Um, wow, thank you. It's, it's really nice to be back here. I was walking down the street on my way to the campus and um, had a moment where I laughed to myself because I have a bow tie on and a, a vest. And this is how I used to dress going to classes while a student. Um, I've not dressed like this in a long time, so. <laughs> and I didn't even realize I had this out, yeah, anyway. Um, but I, I really am grateful 
for the opportunity to share with you. Uh, I want to first thank the conference organizers and members of the steering committee whose necessary work has made this convening possible for the invitation to be part of this conversation. And I especially like to thank you, Dr. Carey Day, for initially reaching out. Um, when I was a first year student at PTS in 2004, I recall having a conversation with a student whose name I can't remember at the moment. The student, possibly a second or third year black student, told me that Brown Hall, the residence hall I had moved into that year, had been established in part to house formerly enslaved Africans and black servants. This is what they said. They had heard from someone who had heard from someone else that some of the rooms had at some point been slave quarters. So I would lay in my bed, small and uncomfortable as it was, in wonderment, imagining the short distance between the lives of enslaved and formerly enslaved black people who resided there in my own, at least according to the legend imagined and told by this student. I did not know what to think of my studying within a seminary whose mission it is to prepare people to quote, serve Jesus Christ in ministries marked by faith, integrity, scholarship, competence, and compassion when its legacy in my mind at the time was seemingly shaded by its complicity in the enterprise that was chattel slavery. And it's clear now from research that has been undertaken and the reason why it is that we are gathered that the student story was exaggerated, though it should be clear to many as to why it was believable. Brown Hall may have not been slave quarters, but we do know that the funds used to finance its building were donated by individuals whose profits had been derived from the chattel slavery industry. I begin here because I want to mark the ways that the enterprise of slavery and institutional complicities in it, whether we choose to address it or not, haunts us. It haunted the student who shared their story with me. It haunted me as I slept many times with nagging discomfort in my room. I thought about it while sitting through lectures, within the halls of this institution offered by faculty who ignored that haunting. I can't recall more than one or two lectures that I actually heard that centered the histories or the legacy of those histories within our contemporary times that we've been called to scrutinize today and discuss, but we were haunted still. And that's why I'm grateful that we've been here and assembled at this time for what is no less than a self-reflexive reckoning that has been a long time coming. I am here then in conversation with you today within this building, established on a stolen land that was once home to the Lenny Lenape people, on land that is ghosted with the presences and absences of those indigenous to this place because it is my duty. It is our duty, in fact, to be here, to be in conversation as we confront that which haunts us, the presences and absences of enslaved Africans those who sought refuge beyond the bounds of chattel slavery in the South, only to bump up against the violent manifestation of slavery's afterlife in the North. And those who by mandate were freed, even as they fought to materialize all they had imagined as being consigned to the free. And those who labored and struggled and lived and died to make something of a livable life possible for me, for us. And those who were denied access to institutions of higher learning whose highest forms of learning were steeped in anti-black, sometimes Christianity-based ideas that were meant to keep white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy firmly in place. It is my duty, our duty to be here today, to be part of this reckoning. 
That's why my answer to the question I've been asked to respond to over the short time I'm with you, namely, beyond the campus, how do academic institutions contribute to conversations in contemporary society is simple. The remarks that follow is my attempt to make clear what I now know is the work of repair that we have been called to do, and we've been called to do here on this campus. Asada Shakur, the black political prisoner, stated it best in her autobiography when she wrote, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love each other and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our change. Y'all know that? The title of my talk then, my ruminations really, in response, or response to the question of how we can best do the work of contributing to conversations in contemporary society, borrowing from Shakur is the mandate, it's your duty. And by your, I'm talking to PTS, to fight for our freedom. <laughs> but you have, but you must be willing to lose the chains. You must be willing to lose the chains. If I was in church, I could have got a couple amens on that one. <laughs> and we just ate dinner. I know, it's a setup. So they're trying to feed me so I can't get up here and tell the truth. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay, it's okay, I'm gonna make it work. I wanna begin with an exercise of memory. I'm a writer, so I'm gonna share a story that I penned for the recently released anthology, How We Fight White Supremacy, how timely. You should pick it up, written by Akiba Solomon and Kenria Rankin. I'm reading it here because I think it offers some insights into the theological under, underpinnings of contemporary iterations of a long struggle for black liberation in our contemporary times. I read them here because in many ways, it too is a story that illuminates what Sadia Hartman rightly names the afterlife of slavery. And I wanna stop here to say that sometimes we have conversations like this and we think through this sort of historical frame, the stuff that happened back there. And I think Mark, Professor Taylor did a good job of reiterating the ways in which slavery and its sort of legacies manifest themselves in multitudinous ways in our present. So I'm interested in not just thinking about slavery, the project that we look back to and said that happened then, I'm not responsible. I'm interested in thinking through its afterlife. We are living in its wake, in its afterlife. So to talk about contemporary issues of criminalization, of imperialism, of any sort of form of institutional violence is therefore to talk about the rudimentary sort of presence of slavery in our, in our present. Anyway, so the project of slavery has morphed and switched and switched costumes and assumed different names within our present, but it's still present nonetheless. The story. On the morning of August 31st, 2014, the pews at St. John's United Church of Christ in northern St. Louis were full. It was a final day of the Black Lives Matters Freedom Ride to Ferguson, a national convening. Patrice Cullors, one of the Black Lives Matters co-founder, and I partnered to organize over the course of two weeks. At the beginning of that Labor Day weekend, nearly 500 contemporary freedom riders from across the US and Canada had arrived to provide support to local organizers. Our presence in a church that morning was a sign of our collective resistance and not a reverent forbearing acquiescence to extrajudicial killing. Black grace, after all, is not cheap. 
The streets of Ferguson were still hot when we arrived. The, cave, the rage of the local black activists swelled because one of Ferguson's young, 19-year-old Michael Brown Jr. had been fatally shot by white officer Darren Wilson. Justice seemed to be an illusion. But local organizers and their allies were determined that there would be no peace in the absence of perceptible, material, amends in response to his killing. During one of a few marches held that weekend, it seemed that many of the people in attendance had suspended grace. Some of the younger marchers were rightfully angry because their neighbor had not only been killed by a white police officer, but his bloodied body had been left on the street on public display under the heat of the summer sun for nearly four hours. They were less interested in offering solemn, solemn prayers calling for peace. They wanted Officer Wilson's job. They demanded an end to the abuse and killing of black people by law enforcement. They were prepared to disrupt a local law enforcement unit whose bloated financial coffers were full because of unjustifiable and biased fees imposed upon Ferguson's mostly black populations. Offerings of black grace without any hint of justice, however, is what some church leaders have preached. Biblical scriptures like Ephesians 6.5, for example, which reads, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, have been rendered as a calculus for black servility. And the authoritative proof that enslaved African submissions to white slave masters was akin to them submitting to Christ. Resignation to white supremacist power was considered an act of grace. But these are different and not so different times. Throughout the history of the US, black people have been expected to forgive. <laughs> We've been asked to extend charity in advance of the freedom dreams. So many Christian leaders preach as manifested realities to, experienced, to be experienced in heaven only. Forget the police shootings and the officers who kill black people with impunity. Forget the incessant conditions of over-policing, surveillance, and the incarceration in black communities, whether rural, urban, or suburban. Forget the economic policies and systems that continue to disenfranchise black people. Forget housing markets established to diminish black home ownership and economic well-being. Urban renewal policies set to keep black people locked within ghettoized land zones. Gentrification, voter suppression, educational inequity, white races marching under, under the banner of the Confederate flags on southern streets, and sitting white racist president who called black nations shithole countries while refusing to call white nationalists racist, the afterlife of slavery. In some ways, though when we all get to heaven, understanding of justice makes sense. Black preachers' insistence that we will someday ascend to a far off plane beyond our present world free of anti-black racism, economic disparity, and social death is a con commentary on the state of our present realities. It's their way of saying shit ain't right in our here and now. Shit ain't right here and now. Black liberation theologian James Cone has argued as much in his writings. Yet any theology that is disconnected from the material evils impaling black bodies, black communities, black life is not indicative of liberation at all. The message we received during that weekend in St. John's was no different. What was preached was not the typical word offered during Sunday morning services where black Christians often imagined as too benign or caricatured as people befuddled by a colonizer's theology tend to gather. The pastor, Reverend Starsky Wilson, preached a sermon titled, The Politics of Jesus. He did not sermonize a white Jesus, the Christ with blue eyes and blonde hair deemed divine in modernist paintings and a racist imagination. 
There was no preaching of a gospel that demands a downtrodden, black people included, to throw up weary hands and resign themselves to torment meted out by individual actors and anti-black institutions and the state who do them harm. His sermon was not peppered with words like radical, his, wor his sermon was peppered with words like radical and revolutionary, not moderation and restraint. The state, in Reverend Wilson's estimation, should be the target of Ferguson organizers' critiques, whether the cross, the lynching tree, the bullet from a police officer's gun, or the unjust judgment of a court, the black body, like Christ's tortured frame, figures almost always as in flesh targets upon which the state and white racist vigilantes, and sometimes they are one and the same, aim their weapons. And as the congregation of the affected leapt from their seats, swayed arms in the air, and cried out affirmations, it was clear to me that the spiritual pulse of this particular iteration of a long-standing movement for black lives, like freedom struggles of the past, would be one electrified by a fierce rejection of the status quo and submission. The movement for black lives has presented contemporary black churches and professed Christians with the necessary task, namely a push to reconsider the context of a faith, faith system steeped in patriarchy, sexism, militarism, xenophobia, rape culture, homophobia, homophobia Zionism, and anti-blackness. Black people have used think and faith to critique dogmatic anti-black Christian theologies that have been used to douse black rage in the past. But now it's time to consider the ways that some churches have perpetuated perverted ideas of grace. The type of twisted, unmerited favor granted by some Christians who were sooner praised Jesus alongside racist and rape apologists like Donald Trump and Mike Pence while condemning and disposing of other marginalized people in the past. Too many of the organizers have been told by some Christian leader that black feminism, transness, queerness, our liberated gender expressions, our unconventional black politics, our rootedness in African traditional religions, our disbelief in deities, our lack of faith in a state, the ways we love, the ways we fuck, are the ways we resist, are counter-Christian. Some leaders had even preached that hell would be the lot. So many of the black activists in that sanctuary, because of their beliefs, their political views or ways of being. The black people assembled in St. John's at Labor Day weekend had shown up because of their profound love for black people. The sermon was emblematic of the politics of the people. It insisted that we must fight for black liberation for all black people. Black people must never do to each other what the systems does to us. And we must never acquiesce to the iniquity, the evil, the collective sin that is white supremacy. Black grace is costly and its cost is the end of violences which do us harm. Its consequences are transformative justice and a remaking of the world as we know it, and not white tears, or white guilt, or white and self-invested liberalism, but black freedom. I wrote those words as a reflection on what I sense were a set of profound theological concerns at the heart of the movement for black lives, or what has been taken up within media and popular culture as black lives matter. It's a movement iteration that has been historicized and written about widely. Its expansive theological underpinnings have yet to be fully studied and articulated. However, there are a few lessons here for us. One that has bearings on what we might imagine as our critical posture, a response to a range of social concerns in this moment, one that demands of any Christian professing a love for God and a vision of a just world to practice what I have named costly grace. I imagine costly grace as a praxis that requires payment in the form of accountability and redress and the ending of any form of harm in which forgiveness is directed. And aren't we, those of us assembled here, and 
in the work of theorizing and theologizing grace, of training servant leaders to justly in the world, isn't that our work to do? But that's not why I've chosen to read this reflection tonight. In a sanctuary that morning was a motley crew of black people, many of whom were black people who had long distanced themselves from the church, from Christianity because of the ways the church has distanced itself from the tangible project that is black liberation. Some of the people in that sanctuary practiced form of African traditional religion and practiced within a range of cosmological systems beyond Christianity. Some of the black people in the room had grown tired of theologies which lacked a liberationist analysis or theologies that proffered types of liberation even as the theologians articulating them failed themselves to articulate liberation in material ways in their lives. And several of the black people in that sanctuary many of whom were responsible for a national movement gathering that catalyzed the eventual development of the Black Lives Matter Global Network, were students and alum of Princeton Theological Seminary. Damian Connors, Teddy Reeves, Taylor Johnson Gordon, Nile Fort, Reverend Dr. Regina Langley, Asher Ray Gray, me. Those students, an alum raised money to support the costs for transportation and accommodations for about 50 black people from the New Jersey and New York area. Over the course of two weeks, folk like Teddy Reeves and Regina Langley worked diligently to raise money to fund the bus that picked us up at Union Theological um, Seminary and drove us halfway across the country to St. Louis. They raised money so that the contemporary freedom writers could eat. They raised enough funds to cover all housing costs. These students and alum were principal architects of the black queer feminist philosophy and theology, the radical politics that would be the ground upon which the Black Lives Matter Global Network principles were founded. I'm gonna say what I'm about to say because I love PTS and to love is to not lie. I wasn't on campus at the time, but from my recollection, and based on the word of one of the organizers who was a student at the time, PTS did not provide substantial financial support to the students who journeyed and labored and prayed and protested and cried and strategized and built with us, even though those students understood the movement work to be central to their ministerial call and formations as servant leaders. I am not aware, but I am pretty certain that upon our return, we weren't called upon to report back to the administration and faculty the exception being a few dialogues that were set up by the Center for Black Church Studies in which Teddy Reeves was a part, along with, the, with his then director, Dr. Yolanda Pierce. I received since that time many a write-up about PTS students and alum who have gone off to perform various forms of ministry in the world, but I, would, I have not read one write-up, one, chronicling the contributions that black Princeton Theological Seminary students have made to one of the most consequential movement iterations of our times. Where was the institutional support for Reverend Nalford and Reverend Lakuta Mahjumbe, both students at the time, who were returned to campus energized and ready to bring their local communities a prophetic fire that had been burning in the hearts of black people across the country by co-organizing a preaching series or what they named the seven last words of the black slain. The first of which, by the way, was hosted at Shiloh Baptist Church where the Reverend Darrell LaRue Armstrong, another PCS alum, pastors. What happened to the teach-ins, the campus-wide lectures, the localized organizing, the media alerts, the feature stories, and the alumni publications? The experiences of the alum who were part could have been instrumental in shaping the seminary's pedagogical approaches, its curriculum, its culture. 
The absence of any of the above signaled to alum like me a missed opportunity. The failure on the part of PTS at the time to center the most urgent needs of his black students, of black people. What does it really mean, as Carl Barth is known to have remarked, to hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, but to attend to the particularities of our times? The utmost concern of those among us who exist on the edges of the edges of the margins. What are we to make of our silences, which might be signs of our fears or our complicities when our silences are loud? That moment signaled a fissure, at least to me, that seemed to have separated justice as talk from justice as practice. PTS missed an opportunity to engage in the liberatory work of the ministry that is Black Freedom Struggle. And PTS didn't have to travel far to engage it because several of its most committed champions were in its midst. But we have ahead of us, if you didn't feel hope coming, <laughs> a way forward <laughs> that makes the work of liberation of material equity, of transformative justice, of community building, of repair, of costly grace, of radical love, of the gospel possible. This is what I might mean, this is what I mean when I say that it is your duty to fight for freedom, especially, especially when the freedom we are fighting to obtain has been trivialized in part by the institutional legacies we are now gathered to name and correct. This is what it means to do our work in critically responsive ways in these times. And to engage in the work that results in repair and transformation and justice and transformative justice is to engage in the work of spirit. I often think about M. Jackie Alexander, the transnational feminist scholar and founder of the Tobago Center for the Study and Practice of Indigenous Spirituality, who often asks, following the question asked by her, her celebrated friend, Audre Lorde. What is your work? What is your work? And why have you come? After posing those questions, she would often say, and I'm not talking about why it is that you've come here to this place, this room, this campus, this city, but what is it that you've come into being, into this plane to do? And tonight, we're gathered here because we have been called together to answer her question. Why have we come? What is our work? And these are questions which illuminate an understanding of spirit work that runs counter to neoliberal conceptions of labor. You don't know what I mean by that. We sometimes commoditize the good by turning good works into means for which we might capitalize on them. For example, cannot recount the number of Black Lives Matter symposia I've been part of on the campuses of colleges whose policies are lack thereof often, often suggested that the mattering of Black lives didn't extend beyond the presentation of a nicely packaged conference. This is why we, those of us who are part of this PTS community, for instance, must be vigilant after having produced a report on our institution's complicity in chattel slavery and its afterlives by committing to creating material, material forms of equity that formed a more obvious proof of our loving accountability. In other words, we can't talk good talk and not walk the walk. I often told somebody when I was at Vassar, they wanted me to uh, organize a Black Lives Matter conference on campus. 
And I told the chair of the department, no, no, because I wasn't interested in putting together a conference so that they can tell somebody through you know, publications and through emails and, and go on the meetings and say, we had a Black Lives Matter conference, <laughs> even as they were profiling black people from Poughkeepsie in their library, even as the amount of students and faculty of color did not mirror the type of mattering of black lives they professed. So I'm less interested in holding what we might want to call performative, performative uh, sort of like markers of justice. It means nothing if we gather here, and I'm sitting up here sweating in this hot room, <laughs> coming to Princeton and us gathering, looking nice, and having this really polite kind of conversation if we don't leave here and do something. It means nothing. That's what I mean by neoliberal conceptions of justice, commoditizing the good. It's easy to get lost in sentimentality and blame. But as Audre Lorde once remarked to James Baldwin in a 1986 interview in Essence magazine, she said, I'm not interested in blame. I'm interested in change. But what does change look like? And to that end, how might academic institutions like PTS better position itself in such a way that it contributes to conversations in contemporary society? First, academic institutions must be intentional, deliberate, conscious, aware. We are living through, well, we are living, some of us are, <laughs> through the death-dealing politics of empire, a time of dissolved community, a time when white hoods have been replaced with crew cuts and red MAGA hats, a time when freedom fighters can be mowed down in southern cities where white races are still celebrating Confederate generals and fighting hard to maintain a specter of respectable anti-black racism. A time when women must still insist their bodies are their own. A time when LGBTQIA gender non-conforming people are still legally disregarded in some places, sometimes killed throughout the country. A time when undocumented people are likened to parasites. And while I don't wanna assume that we share the same political beliefs, or that we are all in agreement that we are all actually facing critical problems, or that we are all similarly impacted by such problems, or that we all agree on how and if we might move forward, or that we are all in agreement that we are bearing witness to the consequences of anti-black, white nationalist, neoliberal, xenophobic, anti-woman, anti-queer, and trans-militarist, patriarchal capitalism. My sense is that those of us here can agree that PTS at least, that transformation begins with intentionality. Academic institutions must be intentional interlocutors and partners in the collective work of transforming our world, which means those working within academic spaces must be careful readers, interpreters of the times in which we are living through. How can we go on to teach classes as usual, for example, without critically engaging all that is ailing the world and expect students to leave prepared to do the work of growing souls in it? The optics through which we assess the world cannot be myopic, are centered only on the lived experiences of the some as opposed to the many. No longer should we be comfortable with curriculum that does not include black and other non-white thinkers as central to knowledge production. No longer should it be the case that the only time students are engaged in courses on the experiences or theologies or homiletics or pastoral care, pastoral care approaches or histories of black people is when a black professor is at the helm of such a course. I, I cannot tell you how many times I sit in class on this campus wondering what world are we living in? How can you be comfortable 
given a, uh, a lecture on papers that's been sitting for 30 years, never once thinking about how the lived experiences of the people, the students in the classroom, might be reflected in the lecture that you're giving. Like, like only, that is a type of violence. This is what we mean by the afterlife of slavery. I sat in courses with professors who had no intention, didn't care because they've been doing it so long, because of their, because of their status on this campus, because of their status in the field that did not give two shits enough to go search out any, any, any persons beside dead white folk to read. And to be quite honest, it made for a very uncomfortable position for me. I left campus. I didn't live on campus after my first year. I started creating courses because the courses, the things that I needed to feed my soul were not present here. Intentionality is quite difficult to practice when academic institutions are organized around and operate according to principles that run counter to freedom. This transformative work proves to be quite difficult when academic institutions, especially those that have been founded as centers of theological exploration and ministerial preparation, are swayed by the ways of the systems that actually harm. See, this is what I mean, where we got to be self-reflexive, yeah? Like to sit here and to act as if we are not implicated in the critiques that we're offering. It's to not engage in a work of justice. In their introduction to Fred Moten and Stephanie Harvey's The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning in a Black Study, Jack Halberstam writes, quote, if you want to know what the undercommons want, what Moten and Harney want, what black people, indigenous people, queers and poor people want, what we, the we who cohabit the space of the undercommons want, it is this. We cannot be satisfied with the recognition and acknowledgement generated by the very system that denies A, that anything was ever broken, and B, that we deserve to be that broken part. End quote. Academic institutions that denies anything was ever broken, <laughs> which can be evidenced by what it teaches or refuses to teach, by its policies and practices and that which it chooses to ignore, by the focus of its energies and that which it willfully denies cannot be counted as intentional interlocutors and partners in transformative justice work. Academic institutions that systematize this marginalization because they believe that those who exist on the edges of the margin somehow deserve to be that broken part cannot be intentional partners in transformative justice work. Intentionality therefore requires academic institutions like PTS to be self-reflexive, which is what we're doing. It's not enough to name the extent to which our feet are situated on another's necks. I like to say that. You know, we, we, we are really apt at naming whose necks, whose feet are on our necks, and harder work is naming whose neck your feet are on. But we gotta do the radical work that follows such analyses. Take your feet off. Once you find out that your feet have been on somebody's necks, 
justice looks like you taking your feet off, which means the giving up of power, which means the redistribution of resources, which means making space for those whose voices have been silenced, which means committing to the not so glamorous work of repair. Second, academic institutions must increase their imaginative capacities. With regards to PTS specifically, I'm considering what might be possible if we imagine the category of ministry, for example, in more expansive ways. In the example regarding the participation of PTS students and alum in the movement for black lives that I shared earlier, for example, it occurred to me that organizing is not always considered a form of ministry because it deviates from the particular forms of parish ministry that many seminaries train students in preparation for. I'm wondering then what might it mean to reimagine and reshape curriculum and programs in such a way that more closely align with the needs of the times. I can recall how hard it was for me to convince the field placement officer here on campus to allow me to do field work in a policy think tank in DC. Now this was 2005 and things may have certainly changed by now, but even then I sensed that the work that I would end up doing, the ministry would be outside of the walls of the church. And because of that, it was really not legible here on campus. They didn't know what to do. I'm just, <laughs> Dr. Teller knows this. The instruction and supports I needed were nearly non-existent. What might it mean then to shape curricular programs in, in accord with the growing ministerial needs of society? Which seminary or divinity school is ready to prepare servant leaders interested in using traditional and new forms of media making to grow souls in an ever increasing technological world? Which institution is ready to train and provide pastoral counseling and support students who might be called to organizing as a channel for their ministerial work? Which school is specifically developing curriculum and programs and faculty to train policymakers and nonprofit organizational leaders and other civic servants to think critically, theologically, practically about the work of transformative justice in our shared world beyond the global north? Which academic institution is reassessing, reassessing what its work is in the world at this particular moment in time? You all are on that journey. I know some others are as well. So I was heartened, for example, when I had learned of Vanderbilt Divinity School's new areas of concentration for their MDiv students. And I thought I'll share this with you because I think that they're on the right track. Students can now elect to concentrate in several critical areas, including black religion and cultural studies, chaplaincy, pastoral and, um, pastoral and prophetic congregational leadership, global Christianities and interreligious encounter, Mediterranean and Near Eastern studies, get this, prison and carceral studies, get this, religion and economic justice, religion and the arts, huh. religion, gender, and sexuality, and spirituality and social activism. That's what I said. Vandy seems to have been intentional about creating a learning pathway that was reflective of the times and the pressing issues of the times as opposed to imprisoning itself in a cage of dogmatic tradition just because you know we've been doing this all along. But let me pause here to also say the name of the forward thinking black womanist scholar and dean of Vandy's Div School, Dr. Emily Towns. 
Yeah, she's leading the Divinity School through its process as it discerns what it needs to be in this moment. But Dr. Towns, let me tell you, was one of the first supporters of the Black Lives Matter Freedom Rise. Vandy students came too, but their institution actually paid for them to come. Paid for the buses, paid for their food, paid for the hotels, wrote about it. This is what it means to tap into the imaginative capacities of academic institutions are to borrow the frame from Robin D.G. Kelly to freedom dream. Academic institutions have to honestly evaluate the extent to which they are in lockstep with the times or run the risk of becoming irrelevant and even more bereft of spirit. Well-polished but empty vessels, dead. Finally, Academic institutions, specifically those like PTS, who are committed to interrogating its own connections to and push against the enterprise of chattel slavery are in their best position to body forward what might be called, and this is so funny, the spirit must have been leading us, an abolitionist theological praxis. As, as um, Dr. Teller was talking, I was like, that's my teacher. The scholar of geography Ruthie Wilson Gilmore describes abolition as the process through which we do away with the systems that harm us, but also the work of imagining and building that which should be in the place of that which we destroy. You understand that? That to think of abolition is to not think about deconstruction, of raising, of tearing down. Abolition really is a project of imagination of putting into place the things, putting into place the things that we need. In a 2018 interview published on the website of Verso Books, Gilmore stated the following quote, the failure of imagination rests in missing the fact that abolition isn't just absence. As W.E.B. Du Bois showed in Black Reconstruction in America, abolition is a fleshly and material presence of social life lived differently. Abolition is figuring out how to work with people to make something, rather than figuring out how to erase something. I've mentioned Du Bois, he shows in exhaustive detail how both, slavery, how both how slavery ended through the actions and organized activity of the slaves. No less than the Union Army, but also since slavery ending one day doesn't tell you anything about the next day. Du Bois shut out to show what the next day and days thereafter looked like during a revolutionary period of radical reconstruction. And this part is, I think, key. So abolition is a theory of change. It's a theory of social life. It's about making things. And that point is key. A heightened awareness of abolitionism, then, is necessary right now particularly in a moment when reparations or repair is at the center of public discourse. But I want to extend abolitionist politics in another direction, in many ways in a direction from which some strands of abolition takes its roots, namely in a direction of theology. Beyond what I've shared about the collective work we had engaged in during the weekend of the Freedom Rides, Reverend Starsky Wilson and Patrice Cullors eventually introduced the notion of an abolition theology. If abolition is a theory of change, a theory of social life, a theory whose aims are practical, then we might define abolition theology as a theology of transformation, a theology of social life, 
a theology that is concerned with the making of new things, a theology that interrogates God as central to the work of anti-carceral practices, of anti-blackness, of equal justice, of queer and trans liberation, of gender justice, of transformative justice. An abolitionist theological praxis then is one that moves from the proposition that the black God, the queer God, the disabled God, the immigrant God, the trans God, the goddess is at work in the world, not only as a prophetic force animating the principalities that act justly, but is in the world as the animating force that is present in a collective imagination used to build the world that we need. An abolitionist theological praxis is freedom dreaming and freedom building. It is repair. But as Fred Moten says in his interview, in the same book that I read from before, makes clear, he says, I also know that what is that I also know that what it is that is supposed to be repaired is irre irreparable. <laughs> it can't be repaired. The only thing we can do is tear this shit down completely and build something new. <laughs> An abolitionist theological practice is one then that is centered on the act of creation. Or as Moton would say, the tearing of shit down. It demands that we approach God talk through a new interpretive frame. And it also means that our work, our witness is meet with the God we imagine as a creative force acting in the world, working towards transformation. It means that academic institutions like PTS can play a pivotal role in creating space for this imaginative work, for this God work, in ways that we have yet to see manifested within the public sphere, it is fugitive work, work that escons from tradition, work that refuses to replicate the systems that harm us, work that is material. It means that PTS must not only confront its past and the legacies through which our present is shaped, but it must be ready to create that which we need. Halberstam went on to state in their introduction Quote, we cannot say what new structures will, will replace the ones we live with yet, because once we have torn shit down, we will inevitably see more and see differently and feel a new sense of wanting and being and becoming, end quote. And we will need institutions and people equipped to help us discern God's presence in the world anew, to imagine a transformed world, to build anew, to become anew, and PTS can position itself as a leader in that work. I'm not gonna end here. It is your duty, our duty to fight for our freedom. We have nothing to lose but our chains. But those of us who are the holders of the chains, chains that signify power and position and accumulation and dominance must be willing to let them go. The freedom struggle requires a turn to liberatory knowledge production abolitionist theological praxis and ministry that resists the lore of anti-blackness. This is the work that learning environments like this have been bequeathed by black ancestors like Theodore Wright, who once roamed this campus before he set off to remake our world. The freedom struggle requires a reckoning and repair and creation. And now this institution must make good on its commitment to imagine imagining and building a community of servant leaders ready to practice and embody what it preaches, teaches, theorizes, theologizes. The freedom struggle requires redress. And if redress wasn't important, folks would not fight so hard to stop it. If you think that everyone is celebrating this moment, check the seminary's Facebook page. 
read some of the comments left on the post announcing this very conference. Most of the people who don't like it are white, and a lot of them are angry. This is critical work, but I would be remiss to not end my reflections without offering words of support to the black PTS students and alum who have demanded via petition signed by the Association for Black Seminarians that PTS matches its ideological commitments with material equity. To do so is to model intention. To do so is to unleash the power of this institution's imaginative, imaginative capacity. To do so is to practice an abolitionist theological posture. To do so is to be on the side of freedom. To do so is to engage in a transformative work that attests to the presence of God's loving spirit among us. To do so is to materialize a radical love and justice that some only talk about. To do so is to answer in real and felt ways the answer to the ever-abiding questions, what is your work? Why have you come? Why have you come here? Not this room. Not this campus. But why have you come into being? What have you come here to do? Thank you. <laughs>